Karma's a relaxing thought. Aren't you envious that for you it's not? That's all I've got to say. Thank you. Is Ticketmaster's Taylor Swift ticket fiasco uniting members of Congress? It's Wednesday, January 25th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Kalyani Saxena. Later in the podcast, we'll hear about how Ticketmaster's disastrous sale of Taylor Swift tickets led to a rare show of bipartisanship in Congress yesterday. And we'll immerse ourselves in one writer's account of what it was like growing up Black in the 1960s South. But first, let's take a moment to process the ongoing fallout of the shootings in California's Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay. Both tragedies involved Asian men killing members of their own communities and occurred just days apart. For many Asian American journalists like myself, reporting on these kinds of shootings can be a difficult and traumatic experience. Deepa Fernandez spoke with Ando, a reporter at the LA Times, and Cecilia Lay, a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, about what covering these mass shootings has been like for them. Cecilia, I'd like to start with any latest updates you can give us on the Half Moon Bay shooting. Sure. So the suspect who's been arrested is 66-year-old Chung Lee Zhao. He's a mushroom farm worker. And the Chronicle actually obtained some records that have shown that the man has had this long history of being violent and threatening to his co-workers that actually dates back a decade. It includes things like threatening to split another co-worker's head open with a knife, trying to suffocate another man. Um, so we're still learning a lot of details, but we are starting to get a fuller picture of potential motives here. Mm. And and your front page story this morning is about Asian on Asian violence. Do you want to give us a quick update there? Yes, thank you, Deepa. A lot of people in our communities are wondering, why are um, older Asian male behind both attacks in California? And we looked at the mental health aspects of immigrant lives, what may have contributed to their isolation, their sense of loneliness, and how in our communities, these are taboo topics and the male is encouraged to be the provider for the family. And if they do not succeed or meet cultural expectations, they could lose face. Mm. You know, I want to ask you that it, it strikes me that there may be a time when we wouldn't have had a story like that on the front page of a major American newspaper You know, you as an Asian American woman in the newsroom bring a lot to being able to tell that story. How does it feel to to cover something like that? When it first happened, I never thought it could be a hate crime as so many others were guessing along the same lines. I thought that this is the product of somebody who is separated from society. And somehow that turned out to be true. I wanted to bring some kind of cultural sensitivity as well as patience and the understanding that when newcomers adjust to society, 
there are so many barriers that the average person in the mainstream does not realize. It's not just in your professional work life. You might have lost your status in the old country and are carving out a new niche, but having to jump through hurdles, not just with the language, but with lifestyle and um, cultural pressures. I really was worried about people attaching sort of like an unknown face to the suspects or to the victims. These are people struggling with housing bills, struggling with not just providing for your immediate family, but for grandparents, aunts, uncles. And we wanted to try to weave in a sense of those shared mission. Yeah, there's so much in that, Anne. And and Cecilia, as as you listen to that, you know, mm-hmm. and on your podcast, the episode that's out today of Fifth Emission, you devoted the whole episode to the issue of gun control, which is which is kind of a a different way of coming about this. But it was powerful that the whole episode was was on gun control, especially when we look at California being a state that has some of the strictest gun laws in the country. So I want you to quickly just tell us about that and and why that's an important part of the story to tell. I spoke to uh, State Assemblyman uh, Evan Lowe, who represents California's 26th district, uh, which includes the South Bay and Silicon Valley. Um, And he basically said, quite frankly, he's fed up because he believes as a policymaker, the state legislature has done everything it can do to help try to keep residents safe from guns. And that includes passing laws. As you mentioned, California has some of the strictest gun laws in the country, things like banning high-capacity magazines, um, having an age limit, and uh, doing background checks. But really, he points his fingers at things like the Supreme Court and Republicans who are having those laws be tangled up in the courts. You know, the Supreme Court decision in June voided New York's concealed carry law, which is encouraging challenges to restrictions in other states like California. So the tone that he really shared with me, Assemblyman uh, Lowe, was just people have to understand, people like to look uh, point fingers at policymakers. But when you really sort of look at the 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 way that laws get tangled in courts and in other sort of politics, it's its really complicated. Mm. And, and Cecilia, just to go personal with you for a moment, you had some harrowing tweets as the news of the Monterey Park shootings broke. You were worried for your sister who'd been at the Lunar New Year celebrations right there in Monterey Park. You tweeted that she was fine, but that must have been an awful late night and early morning. And then you like had to turn around and report on it. You're right. It was a really terrible way to start the new year. And the tradition is at the start of a lunar new year, you're not supposed to talk about negative uh, topics like death. And there I was like right at midnight talking to my sister and having mm-hmm. to share about what she just narrowly missed. Um, it's, it's difficult, but I think it's sort of... Uh, encourages me to interrogate the violence more. I think, you know, we've had this conversation so many times. It's it's nauseating how many times we've talked about this. And the fact that this has hit so close to home makes me think about the ways that we should think about as Asian Americans 
Why did this happen? What, what are the gaps and resources that allowed this to happen? And so I don't think the conversation should just be on gun control, but really taking a fuller look at the ways that violence happens within different communities in different ways. Mm. And just kind of a final question to you both. You are reporting, you know, about your communities, but but really the audience of, of you know, both your publications is not overwhelmingly Asian American. Do you ever get caught in a feeling of I'm explaining my community to others and and maybe in the moment it's the Asian American community that really needs the information and the oh. services that you I don't know, talk me through that. Let's start with you, Anne. I think living in multicultural Southern California, we're used to touching upon all of our lives, sharing. And for me, it's a privilege and a learning experience day by day running around the streets of San Gabriel Valley and knocking on strangers' doors and feeling the grace of their words. Also Mm. deep gratitude for the fact that they open up to us. Many, many people affected by violence want to echo their feelings and their fears. And we are in a position to share that as well as the terror in the immediate moment and then the reflections that occur afterward. I want to tell more of these stories and I want to learn from the people on the ground about what they see, what they don't see, the untold stuff. It's fascinating to me. Thank you, Anne. Cecilia, last words to you. I mean, I think that there's just been this really interesting moment in in recent years is that Asian Americans have been thrust into sort of mainstream spotlight because of the increased violence and racism that the community has faced. I think the challenge now is, you know, one, how do we keep the spotlight on Asian Americans? But two, how do we get more complex in how we cover the community? And so when things like mass shootings against a community happens, we want to be really careful to not generalize and, you know, uh, paint the situation in broad brushstrokes. We have to interrogate uh, what's happening very carefully. And, you know, there's a lot at stake in the way that we talk about our community. Mm. Cecilia Lay is a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle and host of its flagship podcast, Fifth and Mission. And Ando is a reporter for the LA Times. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thanks to you and our audience. Coming up next, last November, millions of Swifties sat down in front of their computers and logged on to Ticketmaster, hoping to get seats to Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. Most would come out of that experience ticketless and enraged by Ticketmaster's chaotic handling of the sale. Fans across the country demanded action and change. Well, yesterday, the U.S. Senate heard their call and held a hearing. Where Republicans and Democrats alike condemned Live Nation Entertainment, which is Ticketmaster's parent company, for abusing its market power. Peter O'Dowd spoke with Pablo Manriquez, reporter with The New Republic, about what went down. Stick around. Stick around. 
politicians in Washington don't agree on much these days unless they're taking Live Nation to task. Mr. Berktold, I want to congratulate and thank you for an absolutely stunning achievement. You have brought together Republicans and Democrats. That is Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal addressing Live Nation President Joe Berktold at a Senate hearing yesterday. Lawmakers are investigating the company after millions of disappointed Taylor Swift fans were unable to buy tickets on the company's platform back in November. Both Republicans and Democrats say Live Nation is a monopoly. So what are they going to do about it? Joining us now is Pablo Manriquez. He covers Congress for the New Republic. Pablo, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Great to be here. Good to have you. And I mean, look, if every issue were this bipartisan, Congress would be a much happier place to work in. Uh, What was your takeaway from this hearing yesterday? Oh, absolutely. This is a very bipartisan issue. There are very few things in this Congress that AOC and Josh Hawley agree on, that Bernie Sanders and Chip Roy agree on. I've asked probably three or four dozen members of Congress about Ticketmaster. Most members of Congress who I've asked have very negative things to say about them, and most of their frame of reference for talking about Ticketmaster comes from the debacle last year of the distribution of Taylor Swift's concert series tickets. And we'll get there in just a moment, but first a little backstory. Live Nation and Ticketmaster, these two companies merged in 2010, which means they control the concert venues, the promotion of the concerts, the ticket sales. When that merger happened, just how powerful did the company become? Oh, incredibly powerful because by – most people would have argued back in the 90s that Ticketmaster was already a ticketing monopoly. So when Ticketmaster merged with Live Nations, which is, in essence, an events monopoly, it became just a vertically consolidated monopoly. The hearing has been a long time coming. And this hearing, I think that the senators displayed a lot of sort of decorum. Mm. But it could get a lot worse for Ticketmaster moving forward because the counterpart committee of, in the House of Representatives on antitrust is likely to be run by Ken Buck, who has also been very much an antitrust crusader. So think of like yesterday's hearing as the first hearing in what could be a series of hearings about Ticketmaster if it doesn't get its act together. But it looks like the markets are responding pretty favorably to Ticketmaster because Ticketmaster's stock price has actually gone up a dollar. Well, here's what Live Nation President Joe Burke told, told senators. We absolutely believe the ticketing business has never been more competitive. We believe that fact is demonstrated by every venue renewal that has multiple credible offers in a bidding process. What's his argument and and who's listening? Well, his argument is kind of conflicted. Basically, he's saying he's not a monopoly, but the company's real argument, every time they mess up a ticketing distribution event like Taylor Swift's concert series last year, like Bad Bunny's concert in Mexico City in December— Every time this happens, they basically say Ticketmaster is the only company that could possibly handle this volume of ticket sales. So, it's yeah, they admit basically they're the only show in town, but they say that they're the only show in town because they're the only product capable of handling this particular, like, level of of concert ticket distribution. One of the substantive points that he was really able to avoid in the hearing came from the musicians themselves who wanted to know where the fees are coming from that get put on their ticket prices without their permission. And the inflation, according to the lead singer for uh, Lawrence, who testified uh, on the panel. Clyde Lawrence, right? Right. Yeah, right. Um, it seems to be like an arbitrary ticket price. So he said that when he asked the venues, the venues tell him, well, those markups come from Ticketmaster. And then when he asks Ticketmaster, Ticketmaster puts it on the venues. The price of the tickets, the inflated price of the tickets is something that kind of alienates them from a lot of their fans, especially fans that might not have the money to pay high 
ticket prices for their shows. We heard from uh, many Republicans in this hearing yesterday who said that they support businesses, but that Live Nation needed to be held accountable here. This is Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana. Well, I'm not against big per se. I am against dumb. And uh, the way your company handled the uh, ticket sales from Ms. Swift was a debacle. And whoever in your company was in charge of that ought to be fired. So what do you think happens next? In other words, what is holding Live Nation accountable actually look like? There's really only one big moment they're waiting for right now, and that's the decision by the Justice Department about whether or not they want to unwind the 2010 merger that brought Ticketmaster and Live Nation together into this, like, giant, right? The question basically of will the Justice Department act, uh, how will they act, what will the timeline be for their, any actions that they might have is something that the Senate's waiting on. But obviously, Ticketmaster and all of the high-profile artists and stuff like that gives a, a panel like the Senate Special Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust the opportunity to get on TV. So as long as that exists, I mean, you can imagine that there will be more sort of saber-rattling and, and whatnot. Mm. But for people who are kind of looking at the situation, it's like, well, so Ticketmaster was a monopoly, and then it merged with another monopoly. If you unwind these two monopolies, you just end up with the same two monopolies. So I don't know that... Ticketmaster customers are necessarily going to benefit from mm. more competition in the marketplace if you just break up the venues monopoly and the concessions monopoly that is Live Nation from the ticketing monopoly that is Ticketmaster. Pablo Manriquez covers Congress for the New Republic. Pablo, thank you. Thank you so much. Coming up. The racism and bigotry that civil rights activists faced during the 1960s is often painted as part of a distant and long-settled past. But for many people, it's as fresh as the memories of their childhood. That's the case for Willie Mae Brown, who was 12 years old when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came to her hometown of Selma, Alabama. She spoke with Robin Young about her new book for young adults, My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. That's after the break. When Selma, Alabama was recently torn apart by that tornado, it was hard not to think of another time when it was rent asunder by racism. March 7, 1965, Bloody Sunday. Black, nonviolent protesters attempted to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge to walk to Montgomery to confront racist Governor George Wallace over voting rights. John Lewis and other organizers were beaten by white men deputized for the day by the county sheriff Jim Clark. Two days later, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. led over 2,000 marchers over the bridge and then turned them around, obeying a court order. That became Turnaround Tuesday. Marchers eventually made it to Montgomery and helped pass the 1965 Voting Rights Act. But before that, King made earlier visits to Selma, where for months black residents had been protesting Jim Crow laws that denied them the ballot. Some had been killed. What was it like to be a child in that time? 
Writer Willie Mae Brown was 12 when King first came to town, came to her church. In her new book for young adults, we see how children looked for guidance in the news on brand new TV sets and in the worried faces of their parents. Her book is My Selma, and Willie Mae Brown joins us now. Welcome. It's my pleasure to be here, and thank you so much for inviting me. Well, you draw so much into this world. Girls playing jacks on the floor, making rings out of those red plastic casings around bologna. (laughs) Remember that? Um, Oh, yes, we did. uh, Describe your Selma. Selma is a beautiful place. I love the scent of Selma and the humming of Selma in the late night. You know, because it was so quiet, it almost felt as if... The ground was just talking to us. You know, it could have been a cricket, but it was just wonderful. You say uh, not all whites were hateful, but white was the pure, clean color of hatred. This was a town that also had Negro doctors, Negro florists, Negro owners of candy stores, as you write, and your dad worked for the railroad. Yes, he did. And we had those things in our community because... We were not welcome in their communities. I mean, we did go to grocery store, but we always had to go to the back. Yeah. Well, and in this uh, wonderful book, you begin in your adult voice, talking to the young readers and saying, I apologize for some of the words I'm going to use. Those were the words that some whites used against uh, what were then called Negro people. You also capture the beauty and the music of the language of the South that you grew up in, ushers, ushers, and uh, churin. People talk about their churin, their children, mm-hmm. haints, the ghosts that haunt people, haints. Can you pick a little part where we can get that sense of the voices that are obviously still in your head? Okay. So this story talks about Reverend Dr. King, and I have had a problem with my mother, and I did not want to go with her to a church to hear a preacher preach. And she was like, no, you're going with me. And thank goodness I did. She started to pray because she thought that Dr. King needed as much prayer as possible. So her prayer was in front of the ushers. She said, I've got to call on you today to tell you about something that's going on, Lord. The devil's gotten loose in Alabama. And he's waging war on the people. The devil's loose in Alabama, Lord. He showed up in the seat of the house of power. He showed up on the police force. He showed up on the roads in Alabama. I want to tell you what you need to do, Lord. I want you to call Gabriel. Tell him to perch the angels on the back roads. Perch them in the trees. Seat them in all the churches. You know what you do, Lord. Help us protect us and stand by Martin Luther King because he's going to take us in the right direction. He's going to take us to Montgomery. Be near him, Father. Amen. My mother finished praying and the urshers moved on. Ladies had begun to fan themselves when someone had started singing a song. Just like a tree that's planted by the water. When suddenly I saw a man in a gray suit behind us pointing in my direction towards the dais, he screamed, There he is! There's Kang! I turned around to see as people rose up from their seats and started calling his name, clapping, jumping, holding their heads, hugging each other, stomping, dancing, praying, God, Kang! Kang, Kang, there he is. He was there, right there in front of me. So surreal was his voice, which mesmerized me. And this giant of a man stepping forward to bring justice at any cause to the people, it hypnotized me. I grew limp and trembled under the sound of his voice. Look, baby, honey, that's Kang, shouted Mama. There he is, whoo, oh, yes, sir. 
Thank you, Jesus. Cain, Cain, Cain. I was in front of him, and my mother was there. I heard him say, we have the right to vote. Mama grabbed hold of me and rocked me back and forth as she listened to his words. My head lay on her chest, and I could hear her heart beating fast as her tears fell from her eyes and into my hair. Mm. Willie Mae Brown, reading from her book, My Selma, about the real moment when she saw the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. speak at Brown Chapel, AME Church. Uh, This was in January 1965, very risky on his part. There was a ban against gatherings. Willie Mae, you probably didn't know that there was a ban on these gatherings. People would be killed. What was it like to be a child in this moment? It was a moment that only you could feel. We had the TV, we had the radio on all the time. We knew that there was some sort of disturbance that was dangerous to all of us outside of our home. Our lives went on, but we had that tension. It was always tension in there. At times, you just didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. One day, the black high school closed so teachers could peacefully try to register to vote. Students were going to go with them. Instead, all, including your brother and sister, were rounded up in the school parking lot by Sheriff Clark, bussed to a prison. Uh, They were locked up in cells, uh, only for being on the street. I know, but we were conditioned because this was a children's movement. We were on the front line. Our parents could not go out there and do it because they would lose their jobs. And Reverend King told this to my father in one of the stories. This is after your brother and sister were rounded up with all these kids. Your father found Dr. King, and people were astonished that Dr. King spoke to this man, a rail worker. He'd returned home. He'd been out of town laying cross ties. Yes, and someone sent a message and said that, Brown, your, your children have been arrested also. And now, to tell my father something like that, Mm. he's going to stop what he's doing. He told Dr. King, I I need to get my my children out of there. You know, they're just children. Can you help me? And Dr. King said, they're children. And believe it or not, they are loving this. They come out of school. They are protesting. And they are going to get over this. And we need to stand behind them. They're okay, and we're going to get them out. And a few days later, they were out. Yeah. Do you feel strengthened by having grown up in Selma? Because you faced your own danger. And I just want to mention a couple of things. You babysat for a white Mm -hmm. woman, and two white men came one day. You know, they set off firecrackers that busted open the water under this um, Trailer. trailer that they lived in. You were locked inside with the children, frightened to death. Another time a man came to your house, he didn't have good intentions for you and your sister. There was danger. There was danger. And the danger was not just by white people. And it wasn't about just lynching people. When there's a war, everybody is affected by that war. We actually had a war there for for, um, registration and, and equality. Yes. You're not safe and you can't trust anyone. Like the people who said the king should have gone back to Atlanta and minded his own business. Black people. Yes, because they were afraid. Now, these men that tried to come into the house, they saw someone there that would be by themselves. And I was black, and what would it matter? 
But being that I had a father the way I had a father and a mother that I had, I was taught a lot of things about people themselves. And that as a black child, you did matter. Uh, I did matter. Yeah. How did growing up affect you? Do you think it made it stronger? Did it traumatize you? I am a courageous person. And I've, I've gone through things that have raised me. As Mahalia Jackson says, how did I get over? I got over because we talked a lot. We saw a lot of things go on. And so I knew how to maneuver. We knew that there was trouble out there. We knew what was going on in Selma because we were told, keep that radio on. And when something happens, let us know. Mm-hmm. And you can't be going out here and doing anything you want to do. That man on the street has a gun, and he'll use it. It was part of the atmosphere, people disappearing and stuff like that. So I have no fear because Selma taught me a lot. It raised me in the race for justice. When it comes, I want to talk about this. When it comes to the N-word, a lot of people use it as a term of endearment. It is not. It is horror. And when they do that in the presence of other people on the subway or in the streets or in their music, it's a disgraceful thing. Because there were people, that's the last thing they heard. Willie Mae Brown, her book is My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. Willie Mae, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This podcast comes from the team behind Here and Now, from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Lynn Menegon, Emiko Tamagawa, and Katherine Swartz. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Todd Munt, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Mosquito. Theme music by Max, Mike, and Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.